Welcome to the Quantum Feedback Loop podcast. I'm your host, James Myers, and I also publish The Quantum Record, which features the latest in science and technology. The pursuit of science by so many brilliant people over the ages has unlocked tremendous knowledge of the universe and its workings, but as Dr. Marcelo Gleiser explained in our discussion, science is not just all about reason, it's about being human. Marcelo is Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Dartmouth College and was recipient of the Templeton Prize in 2019. We met recently to talk about his new book, The Dawn of a Mindful Universe, a Manifesto for Humanity's Future. Marcelo integrates scientific knowledge and thinking with a remarkably philosophical argument about the interwoven relationship of humanity and the cosmos, and the duty we owe to protect nature as a treasure the universe freely gives to us. Marcelo helps to bring the universe into a new focus, following in the path of the revolution that Nicholas Copernicus set in motion 500 years ago with scientific knowledge that the Earth is not the center of the universe. Marcelo's book is a call for humanity to appreciate how rare and beautiful life is in a vast cosmos, and our responsibility to protect the natural world that sustains life. He calls it a biocentric view, and we're seeing global evidence of an awakening hope for biocentrism to take human living on a more sustainable path. One of his recommendations in The Dawn of a Mindful Universe is that children should be taught cosmic history. When I told Marcelo that such knowledge would have transformed my own youthful perspective when I was taught only human history, he made the point powerfully that without cosmic history, there would be no human history. How can we tell only half the story? I'm grateful to Marcelo for sharing the story of our human relationship with the cosmos. We may never know the story's beginning, but we have the power to create its next chapter. And I hope you find Marcelo's philosophy for the unfolding story as encouraging as I did. Well, welcome, Marcelo, to the Quantum Feedback Loop podcast. I'm really interested in discussing your new book, The Dawn of a Mindful Universe, and exploring some of the really deep thoughts you've had in that manifesto for humanity. So welcome. My pleasure, James. Thanks for having me. I'm just wondering if you can explain the inspiration for your book, The Dawn of a Mindful Universe. Yeah, the aspiration for the book. Um, well, you know, basically, I um, became sort of disenchanted with the way lots of public intellectuals and scientists and philosophers and journalists are talking about our collective future. You know, people have been very much on the doomsday kind of frame of mind. And I honestly think that that is not helping. That's this sort of generalized scare tactics just doesn't seem to be working. It's not mobilizing enough people to actually make a difference or to make changes in their lives. And I think what's required is that people get mobilized and, and do make changes in their lives. So they, they need to feel emotionally attached to a cause in order for that to happen. You know, rationalizing and just putting data in front of people just doesn't move them into action. And so I said, okay, given that, how can you create a narrative that is powerful, backed up by science, and also emotionally inspiring, so that it would move people into, okay, you know, maybe this is not the way to be living my life, and is there something else that I can do? And that was really the aspiration of this book. So I, what I, I pulled together this way of thinking with a lot of the philosophy and certainly the cutting edge science of what we know about the planet Earth and other worlds around the universe to kind of create this story that is the story 
deathly ambitious, you know, uh, which is the story of the new human, in a sense, you know, how we reposition ourselves in this world in a way that is constructive as opposed to being destructive, which is the way we have been dealing with our resources so far. I found your work very inspirational, especially the way you tie the philosophy into the science of it. And it really makes a very logical story. I mean, the message I took from your book is that the mindfulness of the universe in the title refers to the increased human awareness of our biological connection to the universe. And, and I think you call it biocentrism, a new type of spirituality, I think is the phrase that you use. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like being one with nature and being one with ourselves. And you also say we need to shed our tribal divisions in the process. So I'm just wondering, do I understand it correctly? You're not saying that the universe itself has a mind, but that we are its mind. And and I'm just wondering if you can expand on what you mean by mindful. What would be the most significant sign of a new mindfulness? Right. So lots of lots of parts to your question. Uh, so first, uh, the uh, the title of the book, as you said, you know, it is about definitely not the universe as a conscious entity, even though there have been in history many, many thinkers that believed that was the case, uh, from the pre-Socratics all the way to panpsychism nowadays, right? I mean, there are some very serious, very smart people that kind of defend the notion that consciousness is a fundamental principle of nature, a fundamental property of nature, just like matter and I mean, mass and charge and the spin of particles is, and um, and I'm absolutely not going there. What I'm saying is something else because remember the whole gist of what I'm trying to do is to give value to our humanity, right? We We need to reconnect with ourselves and with the world. And to say that the universe is conscious and we're just like, radio receivers of that consciousness and that's how we operate kind of empties it empties the um the whole narrative that i'm trying to build which is to say no this is not the point the point is that as we develop understanding of the universe and we have done this quite well for the last four or five hundred years or so you know from copernicus onwards what have we learned, which is absolutely astounding, that's my work. I mean, I'm a cosmologist and an astrophysicist. I do a lot of work on the history of the universe as a whole. What we have learned and the way it's being presented to people, it's a little depressing because what, what it says is this. Well, you know, Copernicus, 1543, he publishes this book that says that Earth is a planet, just like Mars or Jupiter or Saturn, which means that it revolves around the sun. And he's absolutely correct about this. He was not the first to say this, but he was the one that said it during the Renaissance. And before that, everyone pretty much, with very few exceptions, believed that the Earth was the center of everything, right? And so the centrality of the Earth was absolutely part of how everyone operated. because. It kind of makes sense, right? If you look around, you know, I'm teaching a class now at Dartmouth, which is sort of like a a kind of an astronomy course for non-science majors. And my project, one of the projects I have for the class is they have to make observations of the night sky, which they love and complain a lot because it's super cold in the winter at night here. But still, you know, they do and, and they are looking at a sky that seems to be revolving around them. 
right? I mean, the moon is revolving around us, the sun. So it is not surprising that for thousands and thousands of years, that's what people thought because, hey, that's what we see, right? And so the big scientific revolution was to change this story and to show that, sorry, that is wrong, that what's going on really is that the earth is just a world revolving around the star. And as that happened, the whole hierarchy of values changed because once mm -hmm. the earth was the center of everything, there was a meaning to us being here on earth and to God being up there. There was a very religious connection and between the theological way of looking at the world and the power of this omniscient and omni omnipresent God and this verticality where the earth is the center where changes happens and the, you know sin and decadence and the perfection of the skies above. Once the earth is not the center, all this goes down. So people get very confused about, okay, so who am I now? If I'm not here at the center, I'm just... And, and interestingly, right after Copernicus, and this is a long story, I hope that's okay, um, people start to speculate, wait, wait a second. So if the earth is a planet, then other stars may also have planets moving around it. So Giordano Bruno, 1570s, he was saying these things. And people start to say, well, hey, if there are other planets out there, there may be life in other planets, there may be people in other planets. So this whole notion of other worlds being populated by beings became widespread in the 1600s. You know, a lot of people are writing stories about that and books about that. Kepler was one that wrote what we call the first sci-fi story of a trip to the moon. So the point that I'm trying to make is that the earth becomes less special with this transition, you know, into Copernicanism. And then the more we learned, we said, but wait a second, the sun is really not the center of anything. It's just a star. You look at the Milky Way there. Are, now we know there are hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way. We know that now pretty much almost all of them have planets, which we're like, wow, wait a second. If that's true, there are trillions, one with 12 zeros worlds just in the Milky Way. And then we really become more and more insignificant. So that is a narrative of how humans that were first, you know, created in the image of God, the center of the cosmos become more and more insignificant. And then of course, our galaxy is just one among hundreds of billions of others. The universe is expanding, the galaxies are moving away from one another and so on and so forth, right? So the point here is that we lost with this story, which is the correct astronomical story, our meaning in this universe. So that's one thing. Parallel with that story comes the fact that if the earth is just a planet and it's not created by God, and if we humans have this dexterity to transform simple matter, simple materials into technologies, which speaks to your, your ethos here in a sense, then um, the world that we live in is nothing more than an object that can provide us with the stuff we need to create our civilization, right? So as we advanced scientifically, right, we became more and more detached from this sacred or, you know, fundamental role of our planet 
that just became a rock that we could grab stuff from to build machines, steam engines, buildings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So, and that has been the industrialization story, right? So as we in the industrial revolution, we figured out that fossil fuels were great ways in which we could power this project of civilization, so to speak. And we started to literally, literally consume the entrails of our planet in order to sustain this stuff that we're building on top of it, you know, with our cities and transportation, etc. And that was great for a while until it isn't anymore, right? And that's that's the problem, right? That's the problem we now all face, right? That this conversation about, yes, you know, we need resources to sustain our project of civilization, that's all true. However, the price that we are paying, the environmental price, price in one side and the existential price in the other side is that in order to do that, we're not just, destroying nature, but also separating ourselves from nature, right? So when you live in a big city, and I lived in big cities for not all of my life, but for a good chunk of my life, we really have to make an effort to look at the sky and to really connect with the world that we came from. And it's very easy, you know, when you're living in these cities to kind of forget our history as a species. So one of the things that I do with the book is I tell the history of our species. So guess what? You know, we've been around, we meaning Homo sapiens, right? Uh, for about 300,000 years or so in this planet, of which for about 98% of this time, we organize ourselves in ways which are completely different from the ways we organize ourselves right now, right? We were hunter-gatherers, we were bands of small, small groups of people, that would roam the land looking for food, looking for sustainability, for, for shelter, et cetera. And now we know there's anthropological evidence that tells you that these bands, yes, they did fight one another, but they also connected with one another, interbred, exchanged goods. So it wasn't all like the caveman is the brute kind of thing that we have this naive image about. There was actually a much more sophisticated way in which these people behaved. And once we, started the agrarian phase 10, 12,000 years ago, that changed. And this idea that, hey, look at that, we can get together in the, in the case there it was near the Tigris and Euphrates, you know, the, the rivers in Iraq, they were very fertile and you know, still are, um, to plant and to say, look, we can control the world. And this is essential. So we can control the world monotheistic religions at the same time were being developed that basically said the gods are not here in the world. The gods are up there in the skies. So the world becomes literally desacralized. And if you talk to not just Native Americans, but Native peoples of everywhere from the country I was born in Brazil to Southeast Asia to Australia, New Zealand, you always going to hear the same story that the world is a sacred place that we should not just feel our belonging to the world but also our gratitude for this world and 
that is exactly what we didn't do as we developed our industrialization. We first of all, we don't belong to the world anymore because we seem to be above the world. So that's a problem. We think we can control nature, which we cannot. And we feel zero gratitude for anything because we never stop to think about the simple, very simple fact that the only reason we are here alive in this planet is because this planet allows us to be here alive on it, right? And we never think about the belonging and the gratitude, which is absolutely essential for those other cultures. So I'm trying to reconstruct a narrative that brings wisdom from these peoples, but combine it with the fact that we know so much more now about the history of our planet, you know, from four and a half billion years ago to the other worlds that we can now see with our super powerful telescopes like the James Webb to regain a value for what our planet truly is in this huge universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really compelling, especially in your book, that, that really passionate defense of nature and our inherent connection with nature, I think, is the you know, that narrative that we are maybe starting to hear now in the world with, you know, it, as as climate starts to become in the forefront of political and economic discussions now, but it's, you know, I'm hoping it's not too little too late, but I think a lot of people are seeing some encouragement from this and, and that's a good thing. I mean, you make a number of interesting suggestions in your manifesto near the end of the book. One, I think, is the idea that we're not owners of the land, we're really kind of tenants on the land. We have this wonderful landlord called nature doesn't demand any rent from us and yeah. and we're not treating it as such. And and but I, I think the other really interesting suggestion was the idea that uh in schools, children should be taught about the history of the cosmos. I mean, I as I read that, I thought how much of a difference that would have made in my life at that age if I had not just read human history, but also cosmic yeah. history and 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 you you mentioned your your uh, I guess your physics for poets class, and I was wondering if that's a way of kind of creating a a common language maybe that connects science with ordinary citizens and gets the imagination going. That is exactly what it is. And uh, so the very first book I wrote, which is almost thirty years ago, is called The Dancing Universe, and is exactly that story. It's the story of our universe. But I start not with the scientific story. I start with all the creation myths of many different civilizations and, and cultures across the world to show that this preoccupation, you know, this worry that we have with our origins is much older than science. You know, it's not didn't start with the Big Bang. You know, it started way before the Big Bang. And in fact, if you open the Bible, what's the first chapter of the Bible? It's Genesis 1, which tells you how the world came to be. So this is very much part of our human identity, you know, that we really want to figure this story out. So there are two histories, you know, there is a history which is, yes, the history of human civilization and human affairs, and we talk about, you know, the, the, the ancient times of Greek and Rome, and we talk about Asian civilizations, and we talk about the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Civil War and the World Wars. Yes, that's all super important. But there is this other history, which is the history that allows us to have any history at all, right? That's the thing. Without the cosmic history, there would be no human history. There would be no human, right? And how can we only tell half the story, right? We only teach kids and pretty much everyone 
only half of the story, which leaves out the fact that we are very, very much part of the universe in a very visceral and deep sense, right? And it's funny because uh, last night I was, we have my, uh, I have a 12 year old and we have like, okay, you have to read for for half an hour and and we sat together to read and I'm reading the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which is a spectacular book, you know, written 1900 years ago. And, and I just, you know, it's just these little chunks of, of wisdom, so to speak. And, and in one of them, he says something which struck me as amazing. He's really talking about this notion that was very, very pervasive in ancient Greece, which is the notion of um, every, that, that the universe is a wholesome totality and that all that exists, all the matter that exists in the universe comes from this fundamental substance and then exists for a while in some form and returns back to that fundamental substance. So, so because of that, all, all existence, everything that exists, planets, people, tables, you know, they are just a temporary structure that arises and then goes down back into this primal substance, which is much older than Marcus Aurelius. This is an idea from Anaximander, which is 600 BCE, right? This guy is saying that. But but what Marcus Aurelius says, which is really a very, that, that I thought was quite amazing, you'll see why in a second, is that he uses the word, everything that exists is interwoven, right? Because clearly, if it's the same primal substance, and that was their stoic idea, the you know, stoicism comes, that's what he's talking about, um, then everything is connected because everything is made of this basic stuff. And then you go and you look at the Buddhist tradition, completely separate from Greek and Roman philosophy. And, you know, there's this monk from Vietnam, Thich Nhat Hanh, who says, who uses this word called interbeing, which basically says that everything that exists in the world is interconnected and codependent. So he says, if you're reading this book, there's this beautiful little poem because he writes almost in a very lyrical way. He writes something like, if you're reading this book, you're looking at this page. Now, this page is made of paper. This paper came from a tree. So when you're looking at this book and reading this page, you really have to think about that tree. But the tree only exists because there is water. And the water is there because there is weather. And because of the weather, where does it come from? From the sun. So the sun that gives rise to the tree and to the, to the water that feeds this tree is really responsible for the existence of this little piece of paper. But where does the sun come from? Well, it comes from the atoms that were there 5 billion years ago. So he's saying these things and I'm thinking, wow, you know, so you have the Greek Roman guy saying something like this. There is the Buddhist tradition saying something like this. And there is the modern science saying something like this because it is absolutely true when we talk about we're all stardust. It is beautiful, lyrical, but it's also scientifically correct, right? That the calcium in your bones and the iron in your blood and every, every carbon cell, every carbon uh, atom that you have in your body comes from 
remains of stars that exploded billions and billions of years ago. So it is absolutely true that the conformation that we call ourselves, you, James, me, Marcelo, okay, we are 40, 50, 60 years old on this planet, but the stuff that we're made of is billions of years old. And it is the primal substance that has been circulating around because when a star explodes, it spreads out its materials that give rise to new stars that live, form planets, explodes, etc. And so there is this dance of creation, this flow that is the essential dynamics of the universe that is reproduced in the philosophical thinking of very different cultures. So what is this telling us, right? This is telling us that we have to take this story very seriously. And that is what I try to do with this book. And in particular, fundamentally, and I think that's where we should go there, is that now we know 20 years ago, if you were talking to me 20 years ago, I couldn't say that for, for certain, but now we know that all stars, or pretty much most of them, do have planets going around it. And we can now see evidence, indirect evidence of planets going around stars, and even some direct evidence actually, 10, 100, 500 light years away from us. And we see these worlds, and we can actually now see how much mass they have. We can see how far they are orbiting their stars. And we can start to create a kind of a cosmic census of planets, right? Say, so, okay, how many of these planets, at least in our galaxy, because far from our, in other galaxies, we can't reach, but because it's hard to see planets. Um, in our galaxy, we can look at these worlds. And now we can... We've found, confirmed, more than 5,500 of those. And with that, we can start having some statistics. And it turns out that planets have a similar radius and mass to the Earth are about 3% of all of them. Okay, And you say, wow, that's not that many. But of course, when you have a trillion planets, 3% is a lot. 3% <laughs> of a trillion, right, is, is, is a lot of planets because, you know, 1% of a trillion will be just 10 billion, right? So, but then you start thinking, but how many of these planets orbit the right kind of star? How many of these planets orbit the right kind of star at the right distance from the star so they have liquid water, which is the way we understand life. We need liquid water, right? And then that's 3% starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And what you find out is that, yes, there'll be some planets out there which are similar to Earth in astronomical properties, meaning similar mass, similar radius, possibly similar chemical composition, so there'll be water, etc. And then astronomers tend to conclude from that that life is ubiquitous, that there'll be a ton of other living worlds out there. But things are not so simple, right? Because it's not just about having the stage. You need the actors as well. And the actors is where the biology comes in. And once you put biology into this game, things get much more complicated. You cannot simply extrapolate, use the law of large numbers. Say, oh, look at that. There are lots of Earth, maybe a billion Earth-like planets. Well, they may be Earth-like from an astronomical perspective, but 
Earth-like from a biosphere perspective is a completely different story. So what I tell in the book is, what do we know of the evolution of life on this planet? And what can we learn from this to kind of extrapolate to the possibility of life in other worlds? And obviously, you cannot rule anything out because we haven't looked at all the other worlds to see, oh, there is there life there. But what we can say is that quite possibly there may be life in other worlds. But a very sophisticated, complex life with organisms that are capable of self-awareness, of technological development, and of questioning the meaning of existence, there won't be many, if any, in our galaxy. And we, of course, we can't rule it out. The only thing we know is that we haven't been visited by intelligent aliens, despite all the excitement about this stuff. Uh, there's zero concrete evidence of this. They're just, you know, like pictures and images and weird atmospheric phenomena. But there's no like, I never sat down with an alien to have a conversation, you know, face to face. Nobody has done that. There's no profound or even any kind of message that we have gotten from a different kind of intelligence. We have no technological artifact from a different kind of intelligence that landed on this planet. So all we can do is look out there and look for, for signs of other technologies, other civilizations, and we haven't found any, which doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that if they do exist, they're very rare, or we're looking in the wrong way, and possibly also in the wrong place. But what that tells you, and it doesn't really matter if there are other intelligences out there for my argument, because my argument is about the rarity of our own planet and of the way life evolved here. And for that reason, and because we are the ones that know this stuff, we have to change the way we deal with this planet. And the whole notion of belonging and gratitude comes back. Because now we understand that we are completely part of this interwoven, interbeing flow of matter that exists in the whole universe. So we can't extricate ourselves from nature because we are nature. And it's total hubris to think that we can be above the world. We can't. You know, I mean, we, we can explode bombs and send probes to Saturn, etc. But you can't stop an earthquake or a volcanic eruption, period. Right, so you, you, we are not above anything. We can ameliorate and alleviate problems with our technologies like we did during the COVID pandemic. We developed a, a vaccine that helped accelerate people's healing, you know, but that doesn't mean we avoided the pandemic or we could do something to stop it. We don't do that. So the point of all this is that uh, we need to rethink the history of what it means to be human. And that is the big argument of the book. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the idea that if we are, if we acknowledge how rare life can be, I, I think is a message I'm taking from your book, that we would then treasure it more. Is is that essentially the message? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you look at when you're hiking, you know, let's make a little story. If you're hiking one day and you see some pieces of granite, you know, some little rocks of granite along the way, you won't care much about them. But if you see a diamond or, or an emerald, you're going to stop and you're going to go, whoa, you know, this is this is unusual. This is amazing. This is important. Let me 
take this with me and care for it. And the idea is that once we understand the rarity of our own world in this universe, that people say, the universe, I mean, there are so many astronomers out there and physicists that say that the universe has been fine-tuned for life. This, this whole kind of like uh, story that is being told where you say, you know, if the mass of the electron were just a little bigger or smaller, or if the mass of the proton, or if this gravity wasn't as strong or as weak, etc., we wouldn't be here. And then they conclude, and because of that, the universe is fine-tuned for us to be here. And this is called, um, you know, th this is the anthropic kind of argument that people use. And I honestly, I disagree with this deeply. Um, and I try to explain why in the book, because that is not how science operates. You know, you don't measure the mass of the electron and say, oh, if we were different, we wouldn't be here. That is obvious because this is how things are. Because once you start to frame the story, see the way you tell a story makes a difference. And when you start to frame the story in that way, what you're doing is you're saying, there has to be a fine tuner. And, and what is this fine tuner? And then you have a split, say, oh, it's God in one way, or some others, which are you know, atheists, uh, they would say, most scientists in this story say, it's not God, it's the multiverse. And then the multiverse is this thing that you can have many, many kinds of universes, each one of them with different properties. And we happen to live in the universe where the properties are such that life is possible. So it's just like, we won the lottery, the cosmic lottery, right? They call it the Goldilocks kind of like, and I think that is not the issue, you know, and that is not explaining anything. What is remarkable to us is that in this universe, with these properties, life evolved, and that we are here to tell that story, you know, um, and, 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 and to, so the multiverse, in a sense, is the uber Copernicanism, right, taken to the extreme. It's like, no, even our universe is important because there are many universes out there. It just happens to have the properties that allows us to exist. Um, and that, to me, is uh, an argument that is just empty of any power to explain anything or, more importantly, to motivate people to look at this world in the way that we should be looking at this world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I like the way you said it's, it's how you frame the story, I guess. And, you know, maybe Copernicus was reframing a story that had been told in a different way before. And, and it's leading us to different modes of thinking. And, and I actually really found your, the analogy of that interbeing really interesting. And, and that's maybe part of how we can get this common language to frame a story. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I guess you mentioned, you know, the COVID vaccines and science, and I think we have now this resistance to science among certain uh, mm -hmm. people. And you've spoken about, you know, how the scientific efforts are there to try to find potential life in the universe. And it's been very difficult. You, you explained some of that. I'm just wondering how that resistance to science can be overcome in a way, I guess, you know, maybe through developing that common language, changing mindsets, and, and you know, developing that kind of biocentric existence, I guess. Is, is, that, is that a way that we can, you know, get that 
kind of uh, appreciation for the rational thinking process of science? Yes, the only way to develop this appreciation for the rational thinking of science is to realize that science is not just all about reason, but it's about being human. You know, that science is an expression of our human desire to understand our place in the universe and who we are, you know, and, and that is never told, right? Uh, we talk about equations, we talk about data, we talk about the meticulous methodology of scientific development, which is absolutely necessary for science to operate, but we don't talk about the why. You know, why is it that human beings choose to spend their lives becoming scientists or inventing new things? And that part of the story, which is where the human part comes in, is essential, right? So we need to tell people that scientists are not robot-like beings that are just doing this stuff because they are completely in love with reason. No, we are doing this stuff because we are in love with the act of understanding, you know, with the, with the power that we have as humans to actually make sense of reality. So mm -hmm. it's a much deeper sort of motivation. Yes, there are all the practical applications of science. And when you are in the middle of that, you don't really stop to think about the meaning of what you're doing, but it is always present, right? And so, you know, the greatest goal of science is to alleviate human suffering or should be, right? I mean, at least that's how it should be framed anyways. And sometimes, yes, yeah, science is serving the interests of the state and of, of private capital. And because of that, it's not that ethical in what it does. But we have to kind of counteract those things like the making of bombs and of things that are not very good for us with the fact that a lot of us really are invested in trying to make the world a better place, right? And so it's, it shouldn't be anti-science. It should be anti the powers that control certain kinds of scientific research. Those are two very different things. Science for the good, science to add rather than to subtract, I guess, is uh... right. kind of unavoidable if you think about it. I mean, there is always going to be, you know, the use. I mean, this has been the history of this alliance between science and the state forever. You know, Archimedes, right, the great Archimedes, he was working for the king of Syracuse to protect it from Roman invasions by sea. And he invented all sorts of catapults and, and you know, machines to defend. So there was, there you go, there you have science at the service of the local tyrant, right? And so it's not a new story, it's a very old story, but this is one kind of science, but that is not all that science is. You know, not all science is invested in either creating weapons of destruction, or more money for those who control the means of production, you know. And the more scientists tell that story to the people, I think the more people understand and appreciate that. Because you see something really weird happened because during after the Second World War, the scientists were the heroes, right? Because the radar and all the technologies and um, 
and obviously nuclear bomb, the atomic bomb, all of that changed and won the war. So the scientists were like, wow, these guys. And that's why so much money poured into research during the 50s and 60s, because, you know, hey, science is pushing uh, the boundaries, it's taking us to the moon, etc. But this kind of love affair with science is kind of like started to, to, to go down the hill, so to speak, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And now it's in a, at a very critical point where it's almost not there anymore. So the wow factor, right? The hero factor of science is, is not there to be seen. And we have to try to rebuild this trust from the people so that we can, you know, do it and, and be supported and admired for the what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly the why question is one that I think is maybe not focused on as much as the how question. And and that's something that, uh, you know, maybe as we understand more of the why, I mean, you talked in, in your book, mentioned briefly the problem of the of the primary cause. Um, I'm wondering if, if, you know, science were able to find some sort of life out in the universe, whether it's prime, like a primitive life, like a bacterium or intelligent life that we could recognize, or maybe an intelligent life that we just can't recognize because it's, four-dimensional or something like that. What do you think would be the effect? Like, how would that affect our approach, you know, that you're advocating for biocentrism? Would it change our approach? That's a great question. So that would be a phenomenal discovery, right? I mean, wow. So we are not alone in the universe after all. There is other forms of life out there. And the extrapolation would be very quick. And people would say, well, if there is one other world, with life, there'll be many, many other worlds with life. And if that's true, then quite possibly some of these worlds will have complex forms of life, possibly even intelligent forms of life, right? So that's how we would go, right, for sure. But that does not change the fact that in our neighborhood, in our galactic neighborhood, we are alone. And this world is profoundly different from all the others around us. So even if there is life, you know, 50 light years away from us, it won't change a thing in, from this perspective of biocentrism. Because what I would say is that, wonderful. So our world is not the only world that we should be considered as a sacred world, you know, but every living world, and I think I mentioned this in the book, that every living world should be considered a sacred world because life is, in a sense, the climax of the complexity that the universe can reach right so if it's appearing other places wonderful you know let's all celebrate that and it's not about human or earth exceptionalism you know it's not like we are the best because we're the only ones but we are relevant and essential because we are the world where there is life that can think about itself and look for other companions in the world. So it doesn't really empty the argument, right? And I think a lot of people misunderstand what I mean because they say, oh, he's saying that Earth is the only planet that has life. And, and how can he know that? And absolutely, we cannot know that. And if there is life elsewhere, then for sure, it should be something to be celebrated. And to. But again, if there is life in a world which is 50 light years away from us or even 10 light years away from us. That means that 
it would be pretty much impossible in the next thousands and thousands of years to have any kind of relationship with those kinds of life. All we can do is have indirect evidence for it because, you know, right? I mean, maybe just to kind of refresh people's minds, when we send a radio signal, it's traveling at the speed of light, which is 300,000 kilometers per second, 186,000 miles per second. So that means that if this world is 30 light years away from us, it will take 30 years for this signal to get there. So we say, hey, people of planet XYZ, that goes 30 years. And they reply, hello, people of the earth, that's already 60 years. So there is no conversation that we can have there for real. I mean, you can set a big chunk of information, but that's it. There's no immediate response. And if you're planning a trip, let's go there, right? Let's get some volunteers and have a one-way trip to planet Alpha, Beta, Gamma. And if we use current technologies to go to the nearest star system, which is the Alpha Centauri system, which is about four light years away from us, it would take us about 100,000 years to get there traveling with a spaceship, which is really fast, which means interstellar travel is incredibly difficult. So again, even if we find indirect evidence of life elsewhere, and this is something that I've been working on. In fact, we just published a paper on how to use a James Webb Space Telescope to do this. And it came out as a op-ed in the Scientific American like last week. Uh, like how do we look at the chemical composition of the atmospheres of these worlds and compare it to Earth? Um, but that's all indirect evidence. And um, what makes it really remarkable is that there is this living world and maybe others out there, but that doesn't mean that this is less important. That's the point. I guess it takes time to change mindsets. And you know maybe while we're building this, hopefully biocentric mindset that you talk about. I'm wondering, is there any one particular scientific action or intervention maybe that could make a significant difference? Like if, if we were to do something different now scientifically, is there something that could make a really huge difference in our appreciation for our connection with nature? You know, something that we're not already doing. And, and I'm wondering too, is there what's the sense of optimism in the scientific community that, that we can get to this biocentric kind of mindset? Honestly, I don't know what the optimism is on the biocentric mindset yet, because it's kind of new. Um, I mean, this notion of biocentrism is not new. I mean, the ecological movement in the 70s, some people actually talked about things like this, and, you know, traditionally, if you put the word sacred or spiritual in any scientific conversation, scientists will tend to turn, you know, look away just because these are not words that scientists use, not because they, they aren't religious scientists. There are quite a few of them, but they don't like to use that kind of word, which I understand why very well in a scientific conversation, right? But this is not just a scientific conversation. This is a conversation that brings together science, philosophy, morality in particular, and, and, and religion, which I would call really secular spirituality, you know, so it's a much broader conversation than just the scientific one. 
So what we can do with science to make the to take this point across, perhaps, is to have more and more scientists understand that the astronomical arguments that we are using for Earth-like planets, that, oh, all you have to do is to find a planet that looks like it has the mass and the radius of the Earth and is moving around the star like the sun, that is absolutely not even close to being enough to make any statements about life in that world. That is a scientific corner, you know, that cornerstone of my argument that you cannot talk about life without bringing in biology. You cannot just extrapolate that other worlds that are behaving just like Earth will be worlds with life. That is absolutely a non sequitur. That is a scientific point, yeah. Is is that what you call inductive reasoning gone crazy? I think was the, the term in the book. Yes, exactly. Is that yeah? yeah. Oh, yeah. look at that. There's one world like this that has life, and so hence other worlds like this will have life too. Not really. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. That's where inductive reasoning fails. Part of the mindset issue, I guess, that you address in the book too is the economic system that you know promotes this extraction from nature uh, without restoring it. And, you know, I was, I was wondering, like, just imagine there's a discovery of sustainable energy source that would eliminate all fossil fuels on this planet. I think both you and I would pray for this. Would we then go and use that new source of energy to extract even more resources, or would we use it to allow nature to heal itself? Yeah, well, I would hope that the point of moving away from non-renewable resources is to not go back to them, right? I mean, it's to actually transform the economy of the world. And, you know, this has happened, right? The, if you look at the history of civilization, the way we extracted energy from the world changed. You know, there was a lot of wood burning and then a lot of coal burning. And both wood burning and coal burning as a source of energy are going down. Right. And fossil fuels and whale oil, which 19th century, you know, that's definitely gone down. And now we have fossil fuels that look at coal. You know, coal is definitely going down in most countries, with a few exceptions like Australia and others. But in most countries, it's going down. And the understanding is that we need to keep this going, meaning this transition into renewable fuels and that's becoming more and more economically viable not quite yet but it's it's because you know if you are just a homeowner and you want to switch your house to solar panels it's going to cost more than most people would be willing to pay unless you have a 30 40 year horizon right so but it's going to get there and and i think it has been established that the cost of energy uh, production with solar and wind is now cheaper than with fossil fuels, right? Now, the thing that people need to understand is that no solution is perfect because we use resources to make solar panels too, and we need batteries to store the energy and batteries use lithium and the extraction of lithium is highly pollutant. So there is no perfect solution, but there are better solutions. Right? And there's also a mindset, a worldview that allows or should reframe how industries and corporations are doing business. 
And this is beginning, right? I mean, you have this thing called B corporations, which are corporations that are operating within a sustainable mindset. And there are more and more of those around. And there are many, I know this because I, uh, I also uh, advise a lot of uh, corporate leadership on systems thinking and ways of sustainability linked to economics, but also to leadership. You know, basically, how can you be a leader in the 21st century without reframing the way you think about your place in the planet, right? So we kind of like have these programs that we created um, and there seems to be more and more interest in this kind of new leadership, you know, at the corporate level. So, you know, there are two ways you can live your life, right? I mean, and right now, the choice is between despair and optimism, right? And I think despair is a real bad choice. <laughs> I certainly don't want to spend the rest of my life being that, you know, in this the kind of desperate state about the, the future of humanity. I want to try to do something to improve it. And mm -hmm. this book is one of the things that I'm trying to do to help, you know, that's my, mm -hmm. that's what I can do, so to speak. Yeah, and I guess, you know, if we realize that there is economic advantage to not treating nature as a second-class citizen on this planet, then that will help to change the system as well. And, you know, you, you talk about optimism. I wanted to maybe just end this discussion on that subject. You know, you started your book with Copernicus. You talk about Copernicus throughout the book. Do you see potentially a new kind of Copernican revolution in thinking starting to happen? And I'm, I'm wondering, especially about young people who are thinking about entering science or making a career in science, you know, how do, do you see this kind of shaping and how do you see it affecting the young people in particular? I think it's more than Copernican is really a post enlightenment view of thinking, right? Because if you think about what happened is that with the success of not really Copernicus, but the guys that came after him, Galileo and Newton, mostly, um, the world was seen as a mechanism, right? And it was really rational and it's followed very precise mathematical laws. And that's where the enlightenment comes from, that it was so successful that human reason became the pathway to the truth. And so if you did not use this methodology, you're never going to get to the truth. And a post-enlightenment way of thinking is not kind of like ditching that out. So like, yes, of course, um, human reason is incredibly powerful and scientific methodology is also very powerful because of that. But there are other ways of knowing. There are other ways of making meaning of the human condition, which are beyond science and that complement science and they all need each other. So when you look back to native wisdom, when you look back to um, alternative ways of living with the planet, more sustainable ways of living with the planet, when you think of systems thinking in, in biological and ecological uh, systems where basically everything that you do affects something else and there is a price you pay for every action that you impose on or every force that you impose on a system once you start to look at it in a different way then you realize that it's not just all about reason pushing things forward there is also emotions there is also 
interconnectivity, the interbeing, the interwovenness, if there is such a word, of everything that exists. And we need to be open to accept and embrace those other points of view if you're going to have a whole, a more wholesome relationship to the planet. So it's a really a different era in a sense. You know, we've done we've done industrialization with a very single mindset. And now I think if you want to protect not just the planet, but ourselves, because it is very simple. If the air and the water are not good for us to breathe and drink, we are not going to survive. I mean, it's that simple, right? I mean, it's obvious. And so we need to protect the air and the water. Otherwise, we, we won't survive. So either we go on this suicidal path or we turn around and we say, okay, how can we change our ways in order to make sure that we're still here in 40, 50, 100 years? And that's where these other ways of embracing life as a very fundamental and beautiful manifestation of the complexity of the universe that we need to protect and, and really celebrate comes in. Yeah, that, that holistic view that you talk about, I, I think, you know, maybe youth are starting to demonstrate that with the concern, you know, being in the leadership of the environmental movement, I think, uh, more so ever perhaps than, than in the past. And maybe that bodes yes. well for, for their future in science. Yes. And you, as you said, the young people, you know, you mentioned there the young people. And I really think that they are the ones, well, this is going to be their world, right, in 20, 30, 40 years. So they have to mobilize themselves. And I think this is beginning to happen. They think differently about so many things compared to our generation, really, you know, and I and I think that's important. But then again, you have the elections in the United States coming up and and I think this is sort of the less desperate salvo of a way of thinking that has to go, you know. And it may hopefully will go now, but if it doesn't, it will eventually go because nothing persists in history forever, you know. And it is clear that this way of thinking is just just can't survive for much longer. Yeah, well, well said. I, I think, and that's a sign of the new mindfulness and biocentric attitude, uh, I think, that you advocate so well for in, in your book. So it's been great, Marcelo, to talk to you about this and to learn about biocentrism and and I think the real hopeful potential for that change in thinking that you that you talk about. So I want to thank you very much for, for your time and uh, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Absolutely. Thanks, James. And uh, let's hope that it goes. You know, I mean, one thing that happened when my book came out, um, I have to say this because it's uh, somebody asked me, I was actually giving a lecture at a, at a church this Sunday, you know, a local church, just because they invited me. And, um, and the guy said, did you, did you have any sort of political interference with your notions? You know, and I say, when my book came out, all these weird, uh, very low rankings, like a number of stars came out from my book without any text, right? Before any other reviews of the book came out. And so that kind of like, slow things down and i think that kind of trolling anonymous trolling right is a sign of resistance so to speak but fortunately other people actually read the book and understood it and wrote good things about it but yes it's a struggle right it's a battle and and we just can't lower our heads we have to keep believing that what we're doing is for the benefit of everyone yeah the, the discussion is so important and yeah it's, it's not about trolling or getting 
your message out before anybody else. I, I think we it's a conversation that we need to engage in across the planet. So, uh, well, listen, thank, thank you again. It, it's been great, and uh, I look forward to uh, perhaps talking to you again in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, and okay. good luck with everything. Thank you. you. All right, bye-bye. Our thanks go to today's guest and to you for listening to the Quantum Feedback Loop. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out The Quantum Record at thequantumrecord.com. The Quantum Record is a monthly journal of philosophy, science, technology, and time, where you'll find the latest developments in our rapidly evolving technological world.